Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We have different gatherings throughout the month. For more info, go to wearesya.com and follow us on Instagram at wearesya. Well, New Year, New Year is a season of hope right, for new beginnings and for do-overs. When I was 16, I needed a do-over. I flunked my driver's test on the day that I got to take it. (laughs) I had to wait a week until I could take my driver's test again to get my license, and I passed. So I got it, right? It's a week after I'm 16, I get my license, and six hours after I have my license, they didn't print them right away or laminate them, and you got them in the mail like, you know, 1,800 weeks later, but they gave me like this piece of paper that was stapled together, they're like 30 pieces of paper, and you fold it up, put it in your glove box. That's what I had when I got a speeding ticket six hours after I got my license. And I returned home, I, was go- I went to pick up a friend, my dad allowed me to do that, you know, and um, I think his last words were, don't speed, right? And I get home, and he's waiting for me on the porch, because he knows how long it would take me to go, you know, and take Steve home, and then come back home. He's waiting on the porch. And um, I walk with my ticket, to the porch with my head down, and he says, don't tell me you got a speeding ticket, to which I still looked down but said, yes, sir. (laughs) And then, I'm not kidding, 16 years old, first time I heard my dad say a cuss word. He, um, how can I tell you this? He, He told me that my rear end was intelligent. Unintelligent, sorry, unintelligent. And, uh, I was, and then he walked inside, and I didn't know what to do. I'd heard my mom cuss, never heard my dad, didn't know what to do. I did go in eventually. I wanted a do-over, right? And I actually learned years later that my mom um, saved me because he was gonna take my, the truck away. And you know, six hours later, he can't drive, and mom's like, just give him another chance. And, uh, but I wanted a do-over. Now, you know this, the average uh, New Year's resolution, it fizzles out for most people after 32 days. That's what the studies show. I think among probably lots of reasons, but certainly as an umbrella over the main reasons, I think they fizzle out so quickly because most New Year's resolutions are just wishes, right? They're just like fingers crossed hopes. They aren't necessarily perspective shifts that turn into actual plans, Right? And that's part of why they fizzle out. And part of why that's difficult is because plans and practices are risky, they're uncomfortable, and they cost us something. But true resolve, it begins with a question or a set of questions. And often the questions by themselves, if we really begin to ask the difficult questions around our resolution. Sometimes the question alone leaves us fearful and flustered, and it woos us back into just the wishful thinking, crossing our fingers. But wishful thinking is usually abandoned after we've begun to make excuses, after we've begun to look for loopholes. And this is kind of why Jesus ruins New Year's. Because in everything, not just in the season of New Year's, Jesus constantly asks Questions. Did you know that over in the Gospels, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're biographies of Jesus' life. And we have a lot of his teaching, right? And he asks in these four Gospels over 300 questions. And part of what he does is he offers 
tradition-altering, worldview-shattering, and often unthinkable truths through these questions. And then, after asking the question, kind of setting things up, he then demands that you and I wrap ourselves up in the practice of this truth that he's offered, that he's laid out, often by just asking some questions. So what I want to do is I want to show you how with just one question, he'll ask more than one question in the text that we'll look at tonight. But with just one question, Jesus shatters our pretense to find loopholes and make excuses for obeying the heart of God and actually probably the heart at the heart of God. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verse, verses 25 through 37. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, you can turn there. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I want to kind of read and talk, read and talk, read and talk. And by the way, if you're like me and you look at the outline ahead of time at a sermon, um, I, I want to give you a heads up so you're not sitting there like I probably would and being like, man, he's not even got to point one yet. Those points I'm not teaching through. I'm ending with, okay? So that you can just hear this story, listen to a few insights. I hope they are insightful. And then at the end, it's practical, but it's quick. So there's that. Here's verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there was more than one occasion that this kind of thing would happen, but this is one of them. And Jesus has been teaching, and I think what often happened, not just with Jesus, but a lot of rabbis in his day, he would do a little teaching, and then he would do some Q&A, right? We should do that in church at some point, right? In big church, lots of people, Q&A, maybe not, but um, Jesus would do it. And this expert in the law, he's like a religious scholar. He stands up, it says, to test Jesus. Now, Jesus knows the game here, and so he doesn't, Jesus doesn't answer directly. And as a matter of fact, there's only three instances where Jesus is asked a question in the gospels to which he answers it directly. That is like boss level stuff, right? But he doesn't answer directly. Here's what he says. So this man asks, teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, well, what's written in the law, the Old Testament law, the Jewish scriptures? He says, what's written there? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Now, he, he doesn't answer directly, partly, I think, for several reasons, but partly because it's a flawed question. What can anyone do to inherit anything? Be born, right? But you didn't really do anything for that. Be adopted. You didn't do anything for that. Your parents chose to adopt you. So you can't really do anything to inherit something. But the expert knows this. And we already know from Luke that he's testing Jesus. He's hoping to trap Jesus into heresy, into religious or traditional heresy. So Jesus fires back, or maybe gently says it, what's your interpretation? Which I think is brilliant, right? Because what we've got here is an expert in the law. So what does Jesus do? He lets the expert be the expert. Well, I mean, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? Now, we're going to see in a moment, the expert is going to quote from the Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And this was a verse that all Jewish kids learned when they were little. And a lot of rabbis would use this verse that he's going to quote to Jesus as a way of summarizing all of the law, right? The law is big. There's lots of laws. So how do you summarize it? Well, this verse was how. So Jesus 
the guy asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? How do you summarize it? So the guy says this in verse 27, quoting Deuteronomy 6, he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind. Now, Jesus was asked one time on another occasion, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he ended up quoting this same passage, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. But Jesus added another part of the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So Jesus said, he quoted Deuteronomy. Someone asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God, all of your, all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus added to the traditional response to this summary, that sent ripples through the Jewish community that Jesus lived in. But Jesus knew that how we treat other people, that's going to reveal more accurately how we actually think, feel, love God. Now that's Leviticus 19, verse 18, where, where Jesus quotes from, and love your neighbor as yourself. Moses in Leviticus 19, he's the one that wrote it. He defines who our neighbor is. He says, don't seek revenge against your own people, fellow Jewish people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's really wild, kind of a tangent, but not really, it'll come back around. If you go down just a few verses in Leviticus 19, in verses 33 through 34, which by the way, this was not only ahead of its time then, it's still ahead of its time now. It's kind of how the Bible rolls always. You don't have to agree with that, but check this out. It says, don't mistreat the foreigner. This was written some 5,000 years ago. Don't mistreat the foreigner who resides among you. Treat them as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you are a foreigner in Egypt. Now, this was not the focus in Jesus' day right? A couple thousand years after Moses, right? It's not the focus often now. It's then as now often all about your people, your own people. The expert asks, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, how do you, how do you interpret the law? Look here at verse 27. Here's what the expert does. Because I only read part of the verse that this man said to Jesus. He said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then this guy adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. This guy's been around for a little bit in the different places Jesus has been teaching and being asked questions. This guy adds to tradition, the traditional response, part of what Jesus added. The simple ripples through. He gives Jesus the answer that Jesus gave, probably with a smirk, the expert. And in verse 28, Jesus said, well, you've answered correctly. So do this, Jesus said, and you will live. That, that just means like have a life that matters. Now, some people, especially as Christians reading this so far, you know, removed from this, we can get sidetracked, right? With the eternal life part, this guy asked, what can I do to receive, inherit eternal life? Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor. Is Jesus saying we can earn salvation? Well, technically what Jesus said was love God, love people, and you'll live. You'll have a life that matters. I don't know that there is a life that matters outside of loving God and loving his people. But in the Jewish world, but especially with Jesus, if you pay attention to his, te his teaching, eternal life was not just heaven after you die. 
Eternal life, according to Jesus especially, it starts right now in your knowledge of God and in your treatment of other people. Verse 29, but this expert wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, what's the minimum amount required of me to love my Jewish neighbor, because that's what this guy's thinking about, because that's how the tradition went, and that's how they, the whole tribal system um, operated. Even though the whole idea of loving those outside of your tribe was around from the very beginning of the law. That part got ignored. So what's the minimum amount required of me to love my Jewish neighbor, Jesus? But instead of answering this guy's technical question, Jesus answers the question that the guy should have been asking. Because Jesus doesn't just ruin New Year's, he ruins all loopholes. The real question for this guy and for you and for me is not who is my neighbor. It's not a who question. The more important question is what? What, what does neighbor loving kindness look like? What does it look like for me to be a neighbor? This expert, he seeks edges and minimum requirements. He's seeking labels and loopholes, like who's in, who's out. That's still a burning question of our day. But Jesus launches into a disorienting and haunting story. Luke chapter 10, verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes because back then clothes were very valuable. They beat him. They went away, leaving him, for, leaving him half dead. Now, pause. By, by raising of hands, how many of you have heard this story or you've heard the phrase, good Samaritan? Right. The majority, if not all. Now, I know some of you are, you know, like me, you just don't want to, you don't want to be told what to do. So I asked you to raise your hands and you're like, no, no, it's okay. For real. Sometimes I, I do that and I struggle and then. I feel convicted later. But now you, you and I, we probably don't know a Samaritan, right? But like if you hear someone say, oh, they were such a good Samaritan, you don't say, a good what? What are you, what are you talking about? No, no, no. We understand that it's like it, it's become this phrase that means someone who goes out of their way to do something good for someone else. Like we may not know the details of the story, but we've heard versions of the story. And we've certainly heard the phrase, Good Samaritan. 2,000 years ago, Jesus introduced an idea through a story that continues to impact not just our culture today, but cultures all around the world because this wasn't common then and it's not common everywhere now. It is a uniquely Christian teaching. Like equality, if you think that the Good Samaritan is a good idea. It's a good idea for an ideal. Matter of fact, let me back up. If you're a non-Christian here tonight, but you think that like this idea of being a good Samaritan is a good idea, or you think equality is a good idea, something like that, you, you don't think that because you're more enlightened. You think that because the culture you live in is more Christian, whether we want to admit it or not. Jesus ruins everything in the best way. I read just the first verse of that parable just to point out, I'm going to read the rest of it, but I just wanted to point out that you and I, we knew the story before it started. Let that sink in. 
Like that's how profoundly history changing this story was from Jesus from, to this guy that was testing him. And I say all of that to say, you know what? You should follow Jesus. You don't have to call it becoming a Christian. I don't care what you call it. You call it whatever you want. You, you should follow Jesus. He, he might ruin your New Year's resolutions, but he will transform your soul. And as a matter of fact, as you begin to, if you look at um, any other religion, any, any cult, any like religious cult, any uh, uh, ideology, political ideology, there's, there's kind of one common denominator in them all. That when it comes to truth, the source or starting point, even when they're opposed to the person of Jesus, they still have to reckon with him. So they still often quote him, even if it's to try to like show how he was wrong. He's the starting point. There's a reason for that. You should follow him. Andy Stanley said, following Jesus will make your life better and it will make you better at life. I agree with that. So in this New Year's, what I want to do is crack this familiar story open and see what new things might pour out. Verse 31, Jesus said, so this man's been beaten. He's on this road um, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's beaten, stripped, left half dead, and a priest happened to be going down the same road. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, telling about a Jewish man because he's coming from the temple. He's a Jewish person. And now this Jewish priest comes by the same road. He sees the man. He passes by on the other side. So too, a Levite, another religious leader, when he came to the place, he saw what had happened. He passed by on the other side. Now, the core of the Jewish tradition was to do good to fellow Jewish people. But maybe the leaders passed by because they saw this man had been beaten and they thought to themselves, well, maybe he deserved it. It sounds harsh, right? But people thought like that a lot back then. A lot of people think like that still today. If you don't think like that, I know I'm just beating the dead horse here a little bit. If you don't think like that, that's because of Jesus. That's because of his influence in your life, even if that makes you mad. But if you're intellectually honest, you have to go, I don't like you, Dusty, but you're right, which makes my day, right? Many people thought like that. And so maybe, maybe these leaders passed by. But in Jesus's day, when they would tell stories, rabbis and the common people, when they would tell stories, they would often tell stories in a series of three. There was this like theme of, you know, this happened and then this happened or this person and then this person. And there was a common theme where there was a priest and then it sounds like a setting up a joke here, but there was a priest and then a Levite. And then always the third was an Israelite, which is just a way of saying a common, everyday, normal Jew, Jewish person like you. Or like me, that was what was going on in the series of three. And so the audience that Jesus is telling the story to would have been shocked and disappointed that the, 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 the leaders in this story, they, they didn't love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength or their neighbor as themselves. They, you know, but there was a priest and then a Levite. Well, what's coming next? Somebody like me. That's what the person in the audience is thinking. In verse 33, Jesus said, but a Samaritan... Samaritans and Jews hated each other. There, there had been hatred and violence for centuries. Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. 
And Jewish, Jewish people looked at Gentile, or, uh, Samaritans and said they were worse than pagans. That was like a big time burn back in the day. And now both of them, Jewish and Samaritan, claimed to be the true descendants of Abraham. Samaritans saw themselves as the guardians of the correct interpretation of the Torah, right? The first five books of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Samaritans were like, that's the only like canonical, like the, the only part that's really, really, truly for sure from God, first five books. This was institutionalized racism both ways. And Jesus's audience, which was Jewish, they would have assumed up to this point before he said, but a Samaritan, they would have assumed that the, the people that beat this Jewish person up and left him for dead was a Samaritan. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. That word pity is a more common word that we use is compassion. The Greek word, the original word that Luke used here, I, like the, I just like saying this word. The word was, in Greek, was splanknizomai. Oh, I can't even pronounce it. Splanknizomai. 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 I just like saying it. It meant to be moved in your bowels. That makes the word even better, right? When you find out what it means, right? Like it's where the idea of, well, I just feel it in my gut. That's actually an ancient idea because ancient people believed that that's actually where our emotions came from, from the, from the bowels, right? And so compassion, this idea of like coming alongside of someone to give them help. It's not necessarily a feeling word. It's feelings and you do something with it. Now, guess how many times, we're, we're reading this in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Guess how many times Luke uses splanknizomai, compassion, three times. Three times. The first time was from Jesus. Jesus had it in Luke chapter 7, verse 13. He had it for a widow at her son's funeral before Jesus did something miraculous. The second time we read it in the Gospel of Luke is right here. Luke chapter 10 in the parable, the Samaritan had it when he sees this beaten and bloody Jewish man. And the third time is in Luke chapter 15 when the prodigal father of the prodigal son, when he sees his son coming home, he has this compassion and runs to him and embraces him. Jesus exemplifies compassion. The father, these are like the, 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 the two pieces of, 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 the, of the cookie, right? And then there's the filling in the middle. The father lavishes it on us even when we're lost. But in between, even our worst enemies have it. Part of what Jew Jesus is doing is showing this Jewish audience that Samaritans are human. They're just like us. They're people. Verse 34, it says the Samaritan went to him and he bandaged his wounds. In other words, he had to touch him. He poured oil and wine that was expensive. And then he put the man on his own donkey which, by the way, that means that uh, the Jewish man rode the donkey, put, and that means the Samaritan man walked alongside his donkey, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. In other words, he risks his life because he transports him to a nearby inn, which was in Jericho, which was Jewish territory. So how do you think it would be viewed? Now that you know this about Samaritans and Jews, or you already knew that and you're reminded, right? How, how would it look if a Samaritan comes into town with a beaten and bloody Jewish man draped over his donkey? Back then, community vengeance was a common thing. Imagine, 1850, here in America, a Native American 
comes across a cowboy passed out with three arrows in his back, but he's still alive. And the, and the Native American p- picks the man up and puts him on his donkey and he comes into Dodge City. And somehow he's able to you know, get a room and he, and he takes care of this man until the next morning, but word spreads throughout Dodge City. What do you think the, the men do in that town when they find out and what it looked like? Or in Kentucky in 2020, during a protest over Breonna Taylor and what happened, this group of black men who created a human shield, you may remember this, created a human shield around this white police officer who had been separated from the other police officers. And these black men that surrounded him to protect him were doing so because most likely this crowd was going to harm this policeman. Now, you think any of those men were called sellouts or Uncle Tom or whatever other kind of phrases? Probably. Verse 35, it says the next day, Jesus is just kind of twisting the knife a little more. The next day, that means the Samaritan stayed the night with this Jewish man. Stayed in the same room. And if you know anything about back in the day with the, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans, really this whole religious you know, cleanliness, uncleanliness, the next day, he took out some money and he gave it to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. When I return, I'll re- reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, the term Samaritan has become synonymous for good, good helper. But for the Jews of Jesus' day, a good Samaritan for, for most of the Jewish people was as preposterous as saying a good rapist. In 2006, the, the movie that won the Oscar was a movie called Crash. It's about the complex web of right and wrong, of ethics. But there's a, a scene that is beautiful and infuriating all at once. I want to tell you the background before I show it. This policeman comes to help this woman that's upside down in a car. There's been a car crash and But the background, these two people had met before, earlier in the movie. Earlier in the movie, the same policeman pulls this woman over with her husband. And the husband's driving, he hasn't been drinking. But the woman, the wife has been, and she's a little tipsy, and she's a little sarcastic to the policeman, but nothing that would deserve for them to be searched or have to get out of the car, but the policeman makes them. And he sexually assaults this woman, that's not the scene, sexually assaults this woman as he pats her down. And this same policeman comes upon this crash. That's the background to this scene. Here it is. Ma'am, are you hurt? Can you move? I can't breathe. Okay, okay, I'm going to get you out. Try it. 
I'm trying to help you. Not you. Somebody, anybody else. Please, Stop somebody. Moving. Not you. No. Get your filthy hands off me. Stop moving. No. Touch you. But there's nobody else here yet, and that's gasoline there. We need to get you out of here right away. Okay. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Okay. I need to reach across your lap. Can I do that, please? rather die. Anybody but you. And I know it's a make, I know it's a, it's a fictional movie, but this, this character, this man, the good he did at the end doesn't redeem the bad he did before. But my point is that many in Jesus's audience would have thought to themselves, I would rather die than have a Samaritan touch me or pay money for me, or take responsibility for me, or help me. And that's Jesus's point. I mean, I mean do, you, do you see the, in a good way, the twisted nature of Jesus's story? What I mean by twisted is not bad, but the way he, he takes it. And he doesn't just say, you should be a, a neighbor to a Samaritan. I mean, that would be, you know, big time. But what Jesus did was said, who... Who's the good neighbor? A person that many of you in his audience would rather die than to receive help from because of the way you think of them. We don't know what happens to the Samaritan after he leaves money with the innkeeper. The parable ends, but Jesus is not done. In verse 36, he says to the expert, he tells the story because this is a response to the expert's question Okay, well, who's my neighbor? And at the end, Jesus asks, which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the Jewish man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Who was the neighbor to the fellow Jew who loved God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, all of their strength, and who loved their neighbor as themselves. Oh, it hurts, right? Like you can just feel it in the audience. And this man, this expert, and the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the Samaritan. He can't even say it. Just the one. Because the answer is clear. There is only one answer. And so Jesus tells him, okay, go and do likewise. Maybe with a smile, Jesus says, well, then go be like that. Go be like 
the Samaritan. Go be a neighbor like that. Jesus redefined neighbor for everyone in every tribe, in every generation. He strips us of our excuses or our loopholes to try to define neighbor in terms of location or people who look like us or who come from where we come from. Like you can see your race or where you grew up or your political affiliation or your religion. You can see any of that as those are my people. Like, like, there's some experiences that are similar, right? So there's going to be some easier connection. Okay, sure. And I think we live in an age that's going to encourage us with certain types of identity politics. Doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's always wrong, right? But it's certainly going to be encouraged and it's probably natural in human nature. However, the more you and I play this my people, my people game, those are my people. Therefore, those are my, that's my neighbor. The more we play that game, the more we will begin only seeing my people as my neighbor. And we'll begin to see those who are outside of my people, my group, we'll begin to see them as something other than my neighbor. And worse than that, we'll begin to see them as something other than human. We, if we haven't learned this from the lessons of the 20th century, then we just, we just haven't learned. But it's been going on for centuries even before. Jesus ruins New Year's. The question, who is my neighbor? It seeks edges and labels and loopholes, but Jesus flips it. To whom must I become a neighbor? And we all do this. We all do this. It's something called thin slicing. We take this thin, small piece of information we have about the person, and then we, we take that thin, little bit of information, we apply it to their whole character. Right? We don't want anybody doing that to us, but we naturally, all of us are at least tempted to do that. And it happened young. Several years ago at a middle school camp, someone I'll call uh, Luis, he was 11, and Kyle, who was 12. Luis said to Kyle, hey, you could be the Chinese president's son. To which Kyle said, why would you assume I'm Chinese? And Luis said, hey, it's no big deal. You'd be, you'd be friends with Donald Trump. And Kyle said, are, are you talking about the president of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, and Luis said, Chinese, North Korean, what's the difference? Now, I'd heard the end of that, kind of, you know how like you're sitting, you're eating, you hear certain things, and then, then your ears as an adult just kind of go, what? <laughs> and so, Luis and I went and had a talk, and I asked him as we began to talk. I mean, at first he was just like, you know, I, I understand this, you just, you don't want to be in trouble didn't want me to call his parents. But I wanted something far more than just like a consequence. I wanted, I wanted to teach him something. So I asked him, I said, Luis, how would you feel if I assumed you were Guatemalan? To which he immediately said, well, it's different because I'm, and he stopped, 11 years old, stopped, and he hurt himself. And that's when I saw Luis go from just being afraid of getting in trouble and open to seeing what was already there in front of him, that Kyle is a human being just like him. It's his neighbor. I think the policeman in Crash in this movie who did this despicable thing, he went from seeing this other human being as another race or a token or an object to seeing her as a sacred human being, his neighbor as himself. But the work is not waiting for a crash 
to jolt you into reality, into how God wants you to see the world. The reality that every human, regardless of race or religion or gender or anything else, that all are made in God's image. All are our divine neighbor. Democrat leadership, even Joe Biden, it's your neighbor. Republican leadership, even Donald Trump, that's your neighbor. Those who put their pronouns on their social media page, even though they aren't non-binary, they're my neighbors. Pastors and priests who abuse their power and hurt other people, they are my neighbor. Homeless people who are hustling for money on the corner, they're my neighbor. The people who everything's a conspiracy, they're my neighbor. Overly spiritual Satans behind every corner, religious people, they're my neighbor. People who listen to country music, okay, they're my neighbor. I asked my dad once when I was little, what's an oxymoron? I heard that at school. I thought it was a bad word because I wasn't supposed to say moron. And he was trying to think how to explain to me what an oxymoron is. And he said, well, it's like two things that go together, but they kind of shouldn't. And then he literally paused and thought, this is a man who was born and raised in Missouri, Southwest Missouri. And he said, kind of like country music. That's how I was raised. But you're my neighbor. Jesus called us to pray for our enemies. And when we pray for them, they become human. They're already human, but they, we see them when we pray for them. Paul expounds on that in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't just pretend to love other people. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold on tight to what's good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. And hospitality in the Jewish world was almost always done to, that word was used for strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people, whatever that is, Paul, right? And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. You can practice this while you drive. You know when like, you're driving and somebody's gonna pass you? What do you do? Come on, be honest. Most of us, we speed up. Right? What if, what if you let them? What if you even gave them a little blessing? Go ahead. Slow down. You know what? Don't, you know, don't, don't be dangerous for people behind you to slow down. And you just bless them. Right? And literally, what if you bless them? And it, what if you notice, because I don't know about you, but I am that person sometimes, but the way I judge the person that does it to me sometimes, I don't see myself in it. I'm way better than them, right? I always know my reasons. And I don't. So like, what if you were just to pray a blessing over them? It won't change their driving, but it'll change your heart. And that's the point. Jesus's parable does not offer action steps or key points. And I don't want to crowd out what God might be pushing or pulling you towards. So here are these three points. They're just questions that I want to leave you with. First, where have you been labeling? Where have you been labeling, like thin slicing? You look at somebody, you got a little bit of information and you label them. Or where have you been looking for loopholes? This is looking back. Look back at your life. It could be an hour ago, could be in the last few months. Where have you been labeling? Where have you been looking for loopholes when it comes to neighbors, right? Neighbors, 
those that aren't like you, that aren't already a part of your group, your people. However you would define that. Second, why should you live as if you believe all humans are made in the image of God? Now, I worded that specifically. Because when we live as if someone is not made in the image of God, like that's kind of revealing, leaking out what's really going on. So maybe instead of just saying, I'm going to always treat everyone as if they're made in the image of God. Okay. But that sounds more like a new year's resolution. Wishful thinking, right? What, why should you, this is looking beyond, this is like looking at having a vision for your life when it comes to this. Like, why should I? As you begin to ask that question, it can be scary, but think of it as a vision. Why should I even live as if? I believe every single person is made in the image of God. And finally, how can you practice neighbor compassion to all people, especially to those who you might consider an enemy or who may consider you an enemy? How can I practice? This looks beneath this, this uh, the way I'm thinking of it, I needed each one to have a B, you know, look beyond, look beneath. But I'm thinking of like right now, right here, beneath, right, my feet, where I'm at right now. How can I practice it? Well, praying for their good is a start. But what else? We're gonna respond in worship, but Jesus may ruin your New Year's resolutions, even some resolutions you may have that are good wishful thinking from this parable that Jesus told us. He may ruin the wishful thinking, but he will redeem it. If you're willing to follow his path, leading down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and there are still bandits on the hills of life, but if you're, if you're close to Jesus, if you're following that path, being obedient to the teaching and person of Jesus. Well, what you'll find out is that you're not to be naive, but even the bandit becomes a neighbor in how you view them and how you treat them. 2,000 years later, we are still talking about this story. We're still arguing over it, not just this one, but all kinds of things Jesus said. And we're still using Jesus' teaching as the standard, as the starting point, because he's the source. Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, his longest recorded sermon in all of the New Testament. It's found in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. He ends it. We're gonna sing about this. He ends his longest recorded sermon promising that those who know his teaching but do not obey, they're like people who build a house on sand and the winds and the rains, which we know about right now, and the storms come and they crash into that house and that house falls because its foundation was sand. But then he says, but those of you who know my teaching and obey me, you're like a house built on a firm foundation. The wind and rain and storm, they're gonna come and beat against your house, against your life because storms always come. But in Jesus' story and in this life, when we're walking with Jesus, the house doesn't fall when we obey him. Because, Jesus says, because the foundation was built on something firm. And that's something firm. Like, don't miss the whole. He ends his entire sermon on this. He's saying, I am the foundation. I'm the thing 
that though life beats against you, your life won't fall. You'll have trouble. You'll have difficulties because that's what part of what being a human is. But your life will not be ruined. Or if it is, it'll be in the most beautiful way. Your life, ultimately your soul, your life will stand because it's built on Jesus. If you'd stand with me, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know where you're at in your, in your faith journey here tonight, but I believe that if you'll trust Jesus, that you will never be more glad that you put your faith in him because he's never let any of us that know him down. He's faithful through every generation. So why would Jesus fail you now, if you decide to trust him, why would he fail you now? Well, as we're going to see, seeing he won't, he won't fail you. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, which I believe most in this room do as well, and for thousands of years, it's the starting point of truth. It's the person of Jesus. His life, his teachings, his death for your sin and for mine and his resurrection to give you not just hope for the life to come, but hope right now. And not just for the new year. Jesus ruins New Year's, right? And all of our wishful thinking. And instead, he helps us put feet to the ground, heads out of the clouds, feet on the ground, and some practices that are difficult. But if we're walking on solid foundation, who is the person of Jesus, our life stands. And it's beautiful. Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray for my friends. Um, I pray for myself, Lord, that you'd meet us in this place at this time. Lord, as we proclaim and celebrate in this place that you have been faithful through generations, Lord, we, we proclaim now that you're faithful today. Lord, meet us in this place. I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.